Welcome back to another episode of The Silent Battle. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. You guys are in for a real treat today. I'm so super excited for this segment. Again, I'm your host, Erica Honeycutt, and today I will be interviewing Dr. David Erasmus. Dr. Erasmus is the medical director of the lung transplant program at the Vanderbilt Lung Institute at Vanderbilt Medical Center Hospital. He is part of the Vanderbilt Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine. He is also one of my favorite transplant doctors that has taken care of me through my whole double lung transplant process. He is so kind to take some time out of his busy schedule and to allow me to interview him today. So let's get started. Um, welcome, Dr. Erasmus. Thank you for being part of the Silent Battle podcast today. Dr. Rasmus, can you tell our listeners about your background as a physician and when your focus became helping patients through lung transplant? Well, I trained in South Africa initially. I did my medical degree there, and then I did my subspecialty training in St. Louis. And uh, I became interested in lung transplantation when I was doing residency, and uh, I saw the incredible transformation in the lives of patients, patients that really had no hope, that had failed medical therapy, and suddenly had this opportunity uh, to live and to thrive. And I was also, uh, I was also encouraged and uh, really given the impetus to, to do what I did because I had a really good mentor in St. Louis, Dr. Susan Keller. Mm-hmm. determined that how do you determine that a patient needs a lung transplant well as a general rule patients with advanced lung disease that have failed medical therapy or unresponsive to the usual treatments for their uh, underlying disease may be candidates uh, those patients have to meet certain disease severity criteria of mm-hmm. course we try other therapies first and they also need to be no contraindications or other problems which would make transplant a risky proposition. So not everybody who comes to us looking for transplant would be a good candidate, not because we don't want to do it, but because it's not necessarily the right thing for everybody. Right. And and that actually leads me into my next question when um, I was wanting to ask what are the requirements for qualifying for a lung transplant um, with Vanderbilt? I think the requirements that we have are very similar to the requirements that other centers use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Generally speaking, patients with advanced lung disease, as we said before, that is not responsive to other therapies, may be candidates. Uh, As a general rule, patients with underlying lung cancer are not Uh, for several reasons, but there may be some exceptions to that rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patients with uh, certain body weight uh, requirements, so a patient that has a very high body mass index or a very low body mass index may not be a candidate. 
Mm-hmm. If they're otherwise in, in good physical condition, but that's a, a relative contraindication, I would say. So uh, patients generally need to have good kidney or liver function. Their heart needs to be working well. There need to be no major blockages in the coronary arteries. And then very importantly, patients that undergo transplant need to have an adequate support system. By that, I mean usually family members uh, yes. that can rally around them and help them through the process because it's not something uh, that one can go through alone. Absolutely. It's definitely uh, it's not an easy process. So a support system, I mean, it's vital when you go through something like that. That's, that's absolutely right. And we also do require patients to relocate for the recovery period of time that mm-hmm. they spend here. So uh, as a general rule, there, there are certain criteria for how close you need to live to the hospital while you're waiting. But uh, nowadays we can set up travel and, and we have some time right. and we get called with a donor. So, uh, you know, even if you live four or five, even six hours away from the hospital, you, you're able to live at home while you wait for your lungs. But after you get transplanted, you need to be close to the center. So we, we do require patients to stay here for a minimum of, of three months after they're discharged from the hospital mm-hmm. while they recover. Uh, and every lung transplant center, I would say, in the U.S., it does have some requirement for patients to stay locally after transplant as they recover. Right. Which and is, then I, you know, it's also important for patients to maintain their activity levels. So sometimes people think that, you know, they're really sick and they're so sick that they really can't move. But there is a point at which one can be too sick for a transplant. So we do like patients to maintain activity uh, while they wait for their lungs. And right. those are the main issues that one uh, needs to, to look at. There are certainly others, but I think those are the, probably the ones you'd be most interested to hear right now. Absolutely. Um... And what should a patient do um, to prepare for lung transplant if that's the route that they've um, that they're gonna go? Um, what should they do to try to prepare for that? Well, I, I think one of the things that's important is, is to be educated about what you're getting yourself into. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think educating oneself is, is a good way to
outcomes may not be as good as what you expect. Uh, and then uh, one of the other things I think if people are working, uh, it's important to, to talk to your employer as to, you know, if you're going through this because you may, may not be able to work for a while. Right. But understanding that in, in the long term, uh, it may be much better. You may be able to get back to your normal activities at, at, at some point. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's very important to understand the commitment and what it would take afterwards. There are some lifestyle changes and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are probably the most important things. Yes. It's a, it's a huge commitment. Um, it's definitely not just a decision that you should just make on the on a whim or or take lightly i mean it's going to affect the rest of your life so so yeah it's i mean it's definitely a huge a huge commitment um if you're approved and 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 you want to go through with the transplant um and typically how long does uh lung transplant surgery take As we, as you said earlier, everyone's different. I know. Um, My husband said I was in there for eleven hours. You know, I had some complications, but you know, typically, um, I'm sure it's not that that long for someone whose whose case was a little bit less complicated, and you know, who who's who went, you know, their surgery went more smooth, smooth sailing, and and recovery went more smooth sailing than mine. Right. Um, and I wanted to go back to the importance of BMI, a patient's BMI for transplant, because um, I know that that was really important. Um, that was something that was constantly talked about with me, um, with my pulmonologist before um, I even, you know, when when we started talking about transplant was BMI. And I had to lose 
quite a bit of weight in order to qualify for for transplant so you know if you know that you're going to have to have a transplant or um, that it's it's looking that way then you probably should start working on your BMI way ahead of time uh, instead of uh, you don't want to get in a situation where it's last minute and you can't uh, you know you don't have the correct BMI to qualify Yes, that, that, that's an important point, uh, Erica. So uh, just to clarify, BMI stands for Body Mass Index, mm -hmm. and that's a calculation that's made uh, based on one's height and one's weight. So as a general rule, if you're heavier um, for your given height, then your body mass index calculation will be higher. Mm -hmm. um, and these calculators are all over the web. One can easily calculate one's body mass index. What you have to do is you, you put your own height in at your weight, and then it'll spit out a number. So what's considered a normal body mass index, and of course there's some variability because not all of us uh, have the same uh, body shape or, or uh, body mass. Right. Some of us are a little heavier than others, and, and, and so forth. Uh, but as a general rule, 25 is considered the average. Um, so when we look at the data uh, for lung transplant, mm -hmm. patients that are malnourished, in other words, have very low body mass index, uh, less than 18, tend to have more complications. Um, and there are exceptions to that rule as well. For instance, some patients with Right. One can save oneself a lot of trouble because it's hard. 
do that when you're second feeding the transplant. Yeah, absolutely. And and what can be expected for post transplant? Um, and and I think the reason I ask this is because there's so many different things that can that can be expected, but um, you know, then you have like for instance, in my case, I was on ECMO for about ten days uh, because my my body actually started rejecting the lungs three days later after the transplant. Um, but you know, other people like everyone's different. Like we said, as we keep saying, so the outcomes uh, can be different. But what what are some of the things that can be expected uh, after transplant? Yeah. So so you know, everybody's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. We do transplant people with different uh, lung diseases. Right. You know, so, so we transplant people with high blood pressure in the circulation, like pulmonary hypertension, and patients with uh, scarring of the lungs, pulmonary mm-hmm. fibrosis, or patients with very severe emphysema or cystic fibrosis. Uh, the course uh, may vary somewhat according to how sick you are going in as well. Mm-hmm. And so there are instances where uh, the body requires more time to recover afterwards, uh, such as your case, where uh, we do extend the support where the machines that we would normally take off in the operating room, mm-hmm. we keep those on in the ICU because those lungs need more time to settle down. And so that there, is a, there is a chance that that can happen. That right. is not the usual recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 
three months, but it depends on uh, what the recovery process has been like. Yeah. So I would say at least three months uh, if, if things go well. If, they, if some patients take a little longer to recover, they might be required to stay slightly longer. And we enroll all our patients in outpatient rehabilitation to get them stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after, you know, for the first year after transplant, we, we do require people to have frequent visits. Yes. Uh, every month for the first year at, at the end of both then. Now, this varies slightly, the frequency from center to center, but we, we like to keep a close eye on our patients in the first year. Yes. And then there will be periodically, we'll have people, Mm-hmm. Make sure everything's working okay, and as we've done with with anesthetics, so uh, you know we uh, we have general anesthesia. Um, typically, do those uh, more or less every three months for, for the first year or so. Yeah, and uh, I guess this is because um, with it being so, with the lungs being so new to the body, then. Um, so many things, I guess, different things could could arise um, with with the lungs being new. Is that is that why we have all these these appointments the first year follow ups in Bronx? That's, that's right. Especially the first three months, you know, people are more vulnerable to to developing uh, infections. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we keep a close eye on that, and also we want to make sure that there's no rejection. Body is not uh, rejecting the new lungs, so there are things that we can do to try to minimize that risk and prevent that from happening. And so that's why we keep a close eye. Uh, we do the bronchoscopies to, to screen for infection and rejection, also to make sure that the airways are healing up properly. Right. And then you know the other thing that one can expect, obviously, is, is that there is a list of medications one has to take. Yes. Right. Amazing. That, that new capacity, uh, but generally speaking, if you 
never run a marathon before you trust like you Joey. Probably won't won't do one after, but the <laughs> people that are capable of doing that after after yeah. long uh, I don't know if that answers your question, what can be expected after I think those are it, some of the most I, it does and you you made some really great points. Um and another mm. I, I feel like um another good question is how do you think transplant affects patients mentally after um you know after they've gotten their transplant um how do you how do you think that they they feel or have you know what it, what is some of the things that you that you hear a lot of times in patients um how the transplant has affected them mentally yes so so i think there's some variability you know i think we're all put together a little bit differently mm -hmm. uh, what i would say is you know, everybody that we're going to transplant, uh, going into the transplant is looking at a pretty short life expectancy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing the evaluation. Right. So it's, and so I would say the vast majority of people, um, you know, uh, are very grateful and, and yeah. uh, recognize that they've been given a shot at, uh, at, at extension of Absolutely. For the most part, improved uh, uh, quality of life as well. And so I would say generally the, the, the long-term outcome is positive. However, you know, sometimes the recovery uh, can be a little bit rough in the beginning. Yes. And it can, it can be hard for people to see that long-term goal in the first month or the first six weeks when they, you know, they're having some pain and having a hard time and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and there are some some people that, that do have uh, problems with anxiety and depression. Some yeah. of the medications, especially the steroids, can make people um, a little more uh, prone to, to anxiety and depression and those types of feelings. So right. we, we, we do have you know a psychiatry team that helps our patients uh, yes. navigate through that if, that if that is a problem. And that tends to dissipate over time, it tends to get much better, but, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly, you know, one needs to wrap one's head around the whole concept right. of tra transplant as well. And so I, I think it can affect people mentally at, at different, in different ways and at different levels. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, in the long term, I would say the outcome is positive for the vast majority of people, but there are some issues that one often needs to work through. Psychiatry team that recognizes that. And so one of one of the things that one has to do when you go through the evaluation is one has to meet with a psychiatrist mm -hmm. so that they can they can uh, we can be prepared and make sure that we're doing the right thing. Right, and I think and go ahead. Go I'm ahead. sorry. Yeah. No. Now occasionally there are some people that, that really don't do do well with, with steroids in the beginning, for instance, and they they may not be able to get a lung transplant. But I think that it's just it's it's so important to try to remain as positive as you can because in the beginning no it's it's not easy and you know I'm here to tell you it's 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 not an easy process in the beginning but you have to look at the overall picture because 
you know, a lot of things that you go through in the beginning, that stuff, it subsides, it goes away. Um, and then it's when you start to feel better, and then, it, you know, you, you can look at the overall picture, you know, you can breathe, you can, you have your second chance at life, you, you know, you can start living again. And I think that that's what a lot of people, if you're going through the transplant, or if you've been through the transplant, and you're in the early um, weeks of it, or the early months of it, you can't just sit there and dwell on what's happening at that time, because you're in a, um, you're in the first part of it and things might not be going as well or as easy as you thought but you can't sit there in that and dwindle in it you have to remember that there's a, a whole lot bigger picture um, ahead of you and so I think that's really important to remember Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I know that I was going to ask you about pulmonary rehab, but you've already spoken on that. You were, you know, the importance of pulmonary rehab after transplant and even before transplant uh, when you are diagnosed with uh, lung disease. Um, pulmonary rehab, I mean, it's vital that you that you go and that you get stronger. I mean, it, it helps your lungs are a muscle, so it helps strengthen them and, and get stronger. Yes, it's very and after transplant, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, uh, and in the recovery time, we do expect everybody to go through pulmonary rehab. Right. And that's typically exercise three days a week in a, in a, a setting where there is supervision and one can monitor the vital signs and look at the saturation and we have eyes and ears on the ground making sure that somebody's progressing properly. But it's important to get one's muscle strength and mobility back as soon as possible. And that, if that happens, tends to, other things tend to recover quicker as well. So yeah. it's, it's a very important part of the recovery process. Absolutely. And even when you graduate pulmonary rehab, you should still continue working out and, um, you know, maybe join a gym or something after you finish pulmonary rehab, just so you can uh, sustain or try to sustain that lung function that you've built up. That's absolutely true. Yes, absolutely. So uh, to, to have a good outcome in the long term, you know, you, one needs to be mobile. It's important. Yes. Right? And uh, Dr. Rasmus, is there anything else you want to add to today's segment? Uh, maybe I just want to make a point that I think lung transplant is an excellent option for some people. It, it's not a good option for everybody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the risk is too high. Uh, the evaluation process is quite vigorous. And the recovery uh, process and the commitment of family needs to be there, the support system, to make it work properly. Mm -hmm. but, but for those who are, if we are able to transplant, it's very rewarding to see somebody uh, transform from having no hope to, to having shot at, at, at life again yes you know? and, uh, so I, I think it's um, it's a really uh, rewarding place for me to work because we see patients lives being transformed mm -hmm. well dr. Rasmus again I appreciate you 
um, just for everything that you've done for me um, as my as one of my doctors and I, I appreciate you so much for coming on here today and allowing me to interview you well thank you so much for the invitation Erica it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> well it was a pleasure talking with you as well and I know this interview will really help um, educate a lot of listeners out there and um, remember, if you out there have any questions or comments, please email me at thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. Again, that's thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. And always remember, life is tough, but so are you. Everyone have a great rest of the day. Thanks again, Dr. Erasmus.